When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the TFL Classics Podcast, and I am Brendan, and this is... Tommy, yeah, and today we've got a really fun video for you, slash podcast, if you're listening on any of the podcast platforms, and as always, a huge thank you to those folks out there doing that. Absolutely. So we have the top five overvalued and the top five undervalued cars in the market based on no research. Now, <laughs> this is based on trends that we've been seeing not only online, but cars that we think are critically undervalued for as good as they are. And of course, cars that we think are overvalued because they're just not that good. So we're going to go through all of those today. Absolutely. Yeah. And and leading it off, and I think this comes as no surprise to anyone, we are talking about the Porsche 911, specifically the air-cooled Porsches. Yeah. Now, of course, a lot of these cars are vehicles that we've had experience with, we've driven, we've owned, um, cars that we think that probably aren't worth the amount of money that the market says they're worth. Now, of course, the market's always correct, because if the market says it's worth that, then it probably is worth that. But we think based on design or driving um, the dynamics or reliability that some of these cars on the list are worth more than they probably should be. Yeah, and uh, going right into what they're selling for, now this is probably the, the highest example I could possibly find, but one recently sold earlier this year, which was a 96 911 RS. I get it super desirable, but it sold for $411,000. And I can imagine many other ways I would rather spend $411,000 than spending it on a 911. I don't know about you, Tommy. Well, you know, you say that, but wait till you hear this. This literally just happened. On Bring a Trailer, a pristine, it was nice, granted pristine, Porsche 911 Turbo S just sold for a record-setting $1.3 million. That is nuts. On Bring a Trailer. And this isn't a 959. This is not a Carrera GT. This is a 911, albeit a Turbo S, but coming in at $1.3 for what is essentially a mass-market 911. Yeah, I and I just do not understand. I mean, I get it. 911s are great cars, and I think they become they became really popular because it was an a uh, great handling and driving vehicle on a budget. But now that so many people have caught on to how great they are to drive, they have just become so expensive that to me at least, it just does not make any sense to spend that amount of money on those cars when you could have just about anything else in the marketplace for a heck of a lot less. Now, Porsche 911s, the air-cooled ones, right? If you go back 15 years ago or maybe 20 years ago, like the early to mid-2000s, you could pick up a really good-running solid 911 for between like fifteen dollars and $20,000. Yeah, and they call those, what, the runny egg headlight? No, no, I'm talking ones? about air-cooled. Oh, the air-cooled ones. Air-cooled 911s, yes. yeah, you could pick up for fifteen dollars to $20,000. And then probably, what, eight, ten years ago, they exploded in value, maybe less, five years ago. And now those fifteen dollars to $20,000 911s became forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar 911s. The thing about 911s, though, is that everybody envisions themselves driving a Singer. When right. you say the word air-cooled 911, you're thinking of the beautifully uh, resto-modded Singer, right? With that insanely built-out flat six and the really cool plaid or whatever tartan interiors. But the vast majority of air-cooled 911s are going to be narrow-body 80s 911s or SC 911s or Carrera 3.2s, which are good cars. But for the amount of money that they go for, $60,000, dollars $80,000, they're only 200-some horsepower. 
right. if you don't get a turbo. Um, they're dynamically interesting, we'll put it that way. I mean, they're fun to drive, but the, all the weight over the rear. Well, yeah, that, the, they're pretty well known for the rear end kind of suddenly whipping around on you. Especially turn, the turbos, right? yeah, the Widowmakers. Yeah. Exactly right. And I just, I don't think that they are necessarily worth the insane money that they have been bringing at auction, especially just the standard ones. Now, we own an 87 911, right? Um, it, we bought it for 35 and we like, wow, what a great deal. And then it needed $15,000 of work right away. So we're like, okay, we could have got a good one. Um, and it now runs and drives very, very nicely. But even still, like, it's a fun car to drive, but the controls are very heavy, right? The whole car is not that heavy, but it kind of drives with this weight of, like, a brick SHIT house. It's just like, whoa, command the road. It's only got 217 horsepower. And yes, they're extremely well made, extremely long lived. But for the amount of money you have to pay to get a decent air cooled 911 nowadays, you could get a whole number of 80s cars for the same price. Well, and not only that, but I, when I was doing my research on Bring a Trailer, you know what I was seeing is that on Bring a Trailer, they're not only selling 911s on there regularly, but they're also just selling parts from 911s, and those are fetching big money. In fact, there were wheels on there that were fetching as much as $20,000 for a set of 911 wheels. Yeah. Just the wheels, no tires, no, you know, no car, no engine, no transmission, nothing. $20,000 just for wheels from a 993. So let's talk about some alternatives. So we said, you know, these cars are not worth the money. If you were shopping for a 70s, 80s, or 90s kind of performance car, and you had, instead of $50,000 to spend, you had $30,000 to spend or $20,000 to spend, what would you get as an alternative to an air-cooled 911? I mean, you could stick to the same manufacturer and just go for a 944 Turbo for yeah. that for that kind of money. And I agree. So we own the 87911 and an 87944 Turbo. The 944 Turbo was half the price. It's the same mileage. It's in better condition. At altitude especially, it's a lot faster. It's yeah. dynamically more superior because it's got the transax on the rear, 50-50 weight distribution. They look just as cool, I think, in this 80s kind of way. Pop-up headlights. Now, they're not quite as well made, granted, um, but parts are pretty gettable. They're fairly serviceable. I think it's a fantastic alternative. Absolutely. But other cars from the 80s that you might get over 911, if you just wanted fun 80s like chicness, C4 Corvettes. You know, yeah. we've had a lot of experience with C4 Corvettes. You can get a good one for 10 to 15K. You get the cool digital dash in some of them, manual transmission, 245 plus horsepower, 300 horsepower in some of them. Or maybe even a Mustang SVO. Yeah. You can get one of those, a 2.3 liter uh, turbocharged four-cylinder in the Mustang Fox body. And the SVO team actually went through those from top to bottom doing a ton of upgrades. And that was actually Ford's first... Ford Racing's first ever car that they had their hands on. They went all out with it. And you can pick up one of those for in really nice shape for less than $15,000. So there's a lot of alternatives, um, not only in sports cars, but in other 70s, 80s, 90s kind of fun cars, which will give you not the same experience. You don't get that air-cooled clatter, but a similar experience for a lot less money. So I think we're definitely in agreement there. Yep. And then moving on to the next one. So our number four most uh, overvalued classic right now is the DeLorean DMC-12. And now these, they only made about 9,000 of them. And they were made from 1981 and 1983. And a lot of you may know them from Back to the Future. That's really kind of what made these cars blow up to the fandom that they have now. Uh, and some of you may not realize is recently just how expensive they've gotten, right? Yeah, for sure. Now, if you do want more detailed um, price guides, right, we use Haggerty a lot. They're kind of a direct competitor to ours. But we do have to give them a shout-out because they are kind of the leading go-tos on, you know, vehicle uh, rises yeah. and appreciation. But let's just head over to Bring a Trailer, right, and see what some of the recent DeLoreans have sold for. One um, bid up to 65000 one sold for forty-seven, one just sold for eighty, one sold for 82, 82. Here's a, uh, another one for twenty-nine, but sixty. So like between, it's like forty to seventy thousand dollars. And go back a few years; these were like what ten, fifteen, twenty, maybe at the most. Exactly, and that's about where they belong. Because keep in mind, this is a car that only had a hundred and thirty horsepower when new, and did zero to sixty in a blazing. Ten and a half seconds. Have you seen the documentary on Netflix about the DeLorean? I have not. John Z. It's really definitely worth a watch. I loved it. Really interesting story about how the DeLorean came to be because the founder of John Z. DeLorean was 
a really big deal in Detroit throughout the 60s and 70s. He was responsible for the GTO. He was responsible for a lot of big names in the automotive world. And then he broke off to create the DeLorean Motor Company um, to, uh, you know, create this stunning world-class, in this case, stainless steel sports car. But even by the time the car made it to production, there were so many compromises and so many delays from the, um, I think it was like the PSA at that time, the V6, right? Yeah. It was just a limp noodle of an engine. Well, and not only that, but it had tons of quality issues as well. And it got to the point to where DeLorean uh, was so terrible with their money and so on the verge of bankruptcy, literally from the get-go, is that dealers that sold those DeLorean cars were actually reluctant to fix the cars that they just sold because DeLorean owed them a bunch of money and wasn't paying out on the repairs that they had already done under warranty. Sorry, PRB, Peugeot, Renault, Volvo. Okay. That was that was the alliance <laughs> there to create that engine. Yeah, I, and remember like the early cars, people were getting trapped in them. Do you remember that? Yep. And uh, <laughs> they were built in Ireland, and then, of course, you had the, the whole um, – you know, tensions between the war and then the, the, the factory in Ireland was, this, it was really interesting. It was this really interesting um, combination of the different religious groups that came together during a time of extreme conflict in the country. And really, um, was it was a pioneering situation. Um, but ultimately, like, the DeLorean got, you know, um, caught doing some shady stuff, although... <laughs> the cocaine deal he did, it ended up being that he's kind of set up for it, as I understand it. But anyways, the point is, the yeah. cars are beautiful. They are beautiful, but it's just, it's clear that they didn't stand behind their own product. The company was kind of set to fail from the get-go because it didn't have enough money. Like, they didn't even come out with a repair manual for their own car, for their own dealers, to know how to fix them when something broke. And, and now to see that people are paying, however many years later... Uh, in some cases, I found one that sold for $106,000 recently uh, for a car that was bad in 1983. <laughs> I can't even imagine how terrible it is to own now. The chassis of the DeLorean was actually engineered by Lotus, which is an interesting kind of side note of history. Okay. Well, there's one cool. positive, at least. <laughs> Look, I think – I'm not sure that they didn't stand behind their car. I just think that they didn't have an opportunity to because the company went bankrupt so quickly. And the other good thing about that, though, is there were so many spares left over that even after the company went bankrupt, another company was formed that actually started selling the spares and keeping them on the road, which is cool. It really was the engine, the build quality, and the performance was an issue because this car was more than a Corvette back in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, and even though 80s Corvettes are not known for their straight-line performance, this thing was dog slow in comparison. Oh, yeah, I mean – most cars on the road would have beaten the DeLorean back then. But right? you're right. right. I think maintenance, especially nowadays, like you really, it's going to be hard to keep this car on the road. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're going to have to scrounge for parts. You know, you're going to have to find a mechanic that knows what they're doing. And it's just, it's not going to be cheap. So what about if you had a DeLorean and you had infinite money, would you do like an engine swap on one, you think? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if I was going to have a DeLorean, I would do it up. I know there was uh, some guy out in California that's doing uh, conversions to make them look like the Back to the Future. That's cool. Car. I think that's that's the route that I would go with it and probably put a more modern engine in it that uh, I can find parts for and keep running on the road. I think that's probably smart. Yeah, yeah, really cool. All right, now let's keep going because our next car on this list is probably going to stir up a little bit of controversy, but these are vehicles which in recent years have gotten extremely expensive. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> I didn't know this actually until recently, but these the Volkswagen bus, and we're specifically talking about like the Type 2, which were you know, from 1950 to 1967, which are the best looking of the buses. And they are really cool. Uh, and they became super popular with kind of the hippie crowd because they were an affordable way to get around. Uh, but they're no longer affordable. In fact, two this year sold for over $200,000. Right. These really shot up in value. And um, yeah, Type 2 introduced in 1949 was when production started. And then you also had the T2 models, which came out in the late 60s, built through um, like the late 70s, 79. And then, of course, uh, you move into like the, the T3 models and the T4s. But um, the early Type 2s are very valuable. And the thing about Type 2s is what makes them really valuable is the number of windows. 
Yeah, it seems like the number, the amount of windows that your vehicle has, like, as far as the Volkswagen buses go, the value tends to go up. So like the panel van versions of them, like we have pictured here behind us, tend to actually be the least valuable of all of them. Uh, me personally, I think the the panel van looks pretty cool. And even the truck versions uh, look pretty cool as well. And um, something interesting that I actually just recently learned is Type 2 is not because it's the second generation of the bus, it's the second Volkswagen because the Type 1 was the Beetle. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Now, I don't follow the prices on these super closely, but all I know is if the number of windows is over 20, it's typically worth a lot of money. And if oh, they're yeah. worth so much money, actually, and people they're so desirable that people will convert the non-21 windows and the non-23 windows into 21 or 23 windows by just cutting holes and putting the windows in. That's how desirable they are. Um, now, the more affordable version, the T2 version, is also pretty expensive, especially if you get like a camper. You're going to be spending over $20,000 for a, a decent one. And then the transporter, which is a little truck, is also worth a significant amount of money. So yeah, any Volkswagen bus of just about any era, and it does have cult status, right? It is a vehicle sure. that um, is instantly recognizable all over the world and is loved by many. Yeah, and, and I get it. They're cool. They're iconic, right? Um, but they are extremely slow. In fact, so much so that there's a business here in Colorado up in Fort Collins where their entire company is just based on taking those old Volkswagen buses, pulling the engine out, and putting in a Subaru or a Porsche engine into the back of it. And that is all they do, and they are booked out for months. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, that's very, very common conversion, 100%. Um, yeah, in original configuration, especially where we live, where you have a hill <laughs> or several, yeah, right? You got to be used to se second gear, flat out. You know, thirty miles an hour. Sure. That that is the Type Two lifestyle. They also rust insanely quickly. Well, every yeah. car from the sixties rust, but these also rust uh, pretty badly. So rust is an issue. But um, yeah, I mean, they they built the T two version around the world until let's see. I'm, I would bet it's well into the, the 80s. Oh, well, no, I 2013. They discontinued the T2. <laughs> 2013. Was that down in Brazil? It I was think in it was, Brazil. Yeah, it was think, in Brazil, yeah. I think there's uh, – so if you find some that are that look like T2s that are a lot cheaper, there's a chance that it may have come from Brazil because those tend to be a lot less valuable. What I've heard about the ones in Brazil is that they don't take the same body panels to put it all together. So sometimes you will get like – body panels with different VINs on them oh, all mishmashed together into the same Volkswagen bus. So if you see like a lot of different VIN numbers on your panels, it chances are it came from Brazil. I mean, you still think about it though. You're driving around a car that the vast majority of people think is super cool. You got it for a lot less. I don't good see. Option. Yeah, option. I think it's a decent option if you want to go with something a little more affordable for sure. And I bet mechanically it's got to be so similar to the uh, U.S. spec ones, especially the older ones. Yeah, 100%. I would assume so. So, okay, let's talk about some alternatives. So you want a practical van yeah. with some cool um, retro touches. Sure. Maybe some retro feeling that maybe you could camp out of. You want to put your bikes in the back. You want to use it to go explore, um, you know, with your friends. What do you get instead? Putting you on so, the spot here. So it, it depends on what you want to go and what you consider cool, right? If you want to go same or you know similar era like 60s, I would go with an old suburban, honestly. You could get a huh. lot of the same practicality that you'd get with the bus, except it'd be a bit faster. Uh, you'd sit a little bit higher off the ground, and you could still take that thing off-roading and stuff like that, the things that the van can't do. Now, I would pitch you to you, 60s suburbans are a little old. I would look at like the square body suburbans, late 70s into the 80s, right? Sure. That is a really fantastic choice. Um, another option, right, if you want to save some money is, and they're hard to find, I'll get you that, but like the Econo lines um, yeah. from the late 60s, 70s, right? They're pretty darn cool looking. They're a little bit more affordable, sure. a little bit faster. Um, that's a pretty cool option. And then the newer Volkswagens, the T3s are getting expensive now. Um, they're right. not really cheap, especially a Synchro, but... Um, the, the the later ones are pretty cool. And if you want to go even a little newer, I even think some of the early Astros, the Chevrolet Astros. Oh, yeah. Like those are cool. All-wheel drive Astros. Absolutely. Kind of a cool up-and-coming 
choice you can get for well under ten thousand dollars. Well, not only that, but the like the if you import from Japan like a Mitsubishi Delica, mm. right? Is that what they call them? The Delica hundred percent vans that came with the four by four and they're kind of lifted up and square and they look pretty rough and tumble. Uh, I think you could probably pick those up for 20? 20, yeah, oh yeah. 25? Easily, easily, yeah. yeah. That's a pretty good option too. So there's a lot of options out there if you want the space and the versatility a van offers with more power than a Volkswagen. Absolutely, and I think that's why they're overvalued. Now, something that happened in history uh, relating to that Volkswagen bus is the chicken tax. <laughs> yeah, so this is a really kind of a fun thing and the chicken tax is a big deal still in play today this is from the wikipedia page um but here's the gist of it france and west germany had placed tariffs on imports of u.s chicken diplomacy failed and in january 1964 two months after taking office president johnson imposed a 25 percent tax almost 10 times the average u.s tariff tariff on potato starch dextrin brandy and light trucks 100%. And included in that was uh, several versions of the Volkswagen bus, including the panel van and the truck version of that Volkswagen bus. And because of that, their sales plummeted. That's interesting. Now, this is once again from Wikipedia. A quote, officially the tax targeted items imported from Europe as approximating the value of lost American chicken sales to Europe. Um, now, the, this is also from the Wikipedia page. The chicken tax directly curtailed importation of German-built Type 2s in configurations that qualified them as light trucks um, and pickups. Vans imported in passenger configuration were not affected. Yeah. And what, what has come out since and in retrospect is that Johnson White House uh, did a quid pro quo with the United Auto Workers president at the time where – Johnson wanted the United Auto Workers' support to get reelected right around the election. And the United Auto Workers said, hey, okay, you want our support. Put this tariff or importation tax on these European vehicles so that the American manufacturers have a better chance of competing in the light truck segment. And that's why he did it. And the thing is, is so a, a tactic that a guy used in the 60s to get elected is still to this day – affecting the prices uh, or the importation of uh, European light trucks. And we see that in several examples. Volkswagen Amrock, right? Yeah. Big, big popular truck in, the, uh, in, the, in Europe. Part of the reason it won't come to the U.S. It's not built here. Chicken tax. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Mitsubishi trucks from Australia, very, very popular. Not built here. Chicken tax. Even vans. Now, um, a common way to get around the chicken tax is to build a production facility in the States. Right. Right. So Mercedes now builds the Sprinter in the States. However, prior to just a couple of years ago, Mercedes would assemble the Sprinter abroad, disassemble the Sprinter, send it to the States on a container, and reassemble it at a facility in the U.S. to get around the chicken tax. And not only that, but Ford, who made the Transit Connect in Europe and then shipped them here to the U.S., would ship them with the rear seats so that it's not a commercial-type vehicle or a light truck, yep. and then remove the rear seats and destroy them and just sell it on through without having to pay that chicken tax. You know what happened to that? They what? got in a huge amount of trouble for doing that. Oh, did they? Yes, they did. Oh, my god! They got in a lot of trouble for doing that. <laughs> uh, but that's also the reason why the Subaru Brat... Had those back seats. They, so the Subaru Brat was oh, this yeah. little truck from the 70s and 80s, but it came to the States with the most ridiculous set of seats in the history of the automobile. It had jump seats in the bed of the truck, facing oh, backwards, which would never be allowed today, but it was allowed back then. And the reason they did that, chicken tax. Yeah. It's Crazy. an interesting piece of history that some politician used to get elected uh, and still to this day affects us. I, uh, I hope... One day we will all come to our senses and get rid of that silly thing. But so, um, yeah, but here's the thing, right? Like the especially the domestic automakers, they're not incentivized to do that, right? Yeah. And if anything, it, they're incentivized to keep the chicken tax in place. That's because true. Because they sell um, trucks. And I think – I might be wrong about this, so don't quote me on this. I think it's trucks built in North America. I don't think it's specifically the U.S. Because um, – actually, yeah, I'm quite positive about that because some full-size trucks are built in Mexico, right? So the North America continent. Gotcha. Anyways, let's keep going. <laughs> I don't know why this car is on our list. So 
these are some of our observations, right? Yeah. And I think that there's certainly market conditions that can back up the 911 and the Volkswagen bus. But the next car on our list, this is just way out of left field. So, Brendan, what are we talking about? Yeah, so, uh, and I want to give a little bit of reasoning here to preface this. So, the other two, or three, sorry, on our list were our expensive vehicles over six figures that the vast majority of you watching can't afford. So, I wanted to bring it down to something that's reasonably priced but it's still overvalued in my opinion. And I'm talking about the Volvo C30 that was made from 2008 to 2013. I mean, that's the only years that it did exist, right? Uh, this was actually the first Volvo hatchback in the US since the 1800 ES back in the, the 70s. Um, but yeah, they what, what I am seeing on these is they're generally averaging about $15,000. Now I know this isn't a super old car, right? 2008 to 2013. Um, but the reason why I think they're overvalued is because if you look at the S40, which is essentially the exact same car, it just doesn't have that cool rear window, they are generally selling for half the price of a C30. Now, this was a really interesting car. Volvo was trying to go down market a little bit, appeal to a younger audience, appeal to a group of folks that wanted something sporty, something youthful. They didn't want the station wagon that their parents had, so they came out with the C30. And honestly, I think these cars are freaking awesome. Um, I didn't know they were so expensive because they don't yeah. shop for them off, often or ever, but they had a really funky rear end, this like continuous glass hatch, which was really cool, and they could get pretty good power out of them, up to 227 horsepower. There's also a Polestar model, if I remember right, the blue yeah. one. Yep. That yeah. thing was really cool. Well, they only they only brought about 250 of those to the U.S., uh, and they were really only about a 25-horsepower bump over the, the stock one. Um, and Polestar editions, now, if you want to get one of those, those are going for about twenty to $30,000 wow, right now. And uh, I just think for a 250-horsepower front-wheel drive hot hatch, Twenty to thirty thousand dollars. There's certainly a lot of other cars I'd rather have. Um, now it came out when it came out. It was competing directly with like the GTI and the Mini, right? Yeah. And I think the GTI and the Mini are both better drivers' cars. Sure, maybe they don't look quite as interesting as the C30, but they are also a lot cheaper even now than the C30 is. So I just want to bring a trailer. I was curious if they sold any C30s because typically their target market is not 10-year-old Volvos. But listen to this. 30,000-mile C30 Polestar, $26,000. 48,000, 09 C30. She's just kind of a standard C30, 11.5. Uh, C30 Polestar, six-speed, $37,000. So that car probably... Probably pretty close to MSRP, if not higher. Um, right. Some 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 years later, twelve seven fifty for this twenty eleven. Those are those are pretty serious numbers. Yeah, and, and again, I just wanted to bring light to something that a lot of people aren't thinking about, and something again that some of you can't afford out there. It's a fairly affordable vehicle, and I think, you know, the C thirties, although a cool vehicle to own, it just there are so many other hot hatch options that you can get for half the price. Well, on this page, you mentioned the Mini. Um, like I can promise you, a 2011 Mini is going to be $7,000, right. $10,000 at the most. Um, same thing with some of the GTIs from the, that era. So certainly a lot of money savings to be had with other options. Yeah, interesting that those cars are worth so much money. I didn't realize people that were desiring them that much. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's some tatty ones that you can get for well under ten grand. But um, All right, let's move on to number one. The overvalued champion on this list is... The Mark IV Supra. Yeah, and we're, so these are the Supras that were made from 1994 to 1998. A lot of you may recognize it from the Fast and the Furious, that big orange thing uh, that Vin Diesel raced, right? Uh, these things have gotten absurdly expensive, absurdly expensive. I, I can remember a time back in my driving days, you know, or fairly early in my driving days, you could pick up a Mark IV Supra for fifteen dollars to $25,000 and it's a good little car to have for fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars. However, uh, one recently sold for, and and this is not a Fast and Furious version, not anything super special, but just a turbo stick shift thirteen thousand mile Supra for two hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars. Yeah. Now these cars have been expensive for quite a number of years now. Sure. It's not just this year. Um, and this 
came with the rise of the NSX, which used to be cheap, not anymore. Yep. The RX-7 FDs used to be cheap, not anymore. The, um, the, the Supra, even the 300DXs are on their way up. Still a little undervalued, I think, but... Well, I think I think they're all undervalued compared to this Supra. Well, what you I mean, what is what is a good FDRX7 going for now? A good FDRX7, I think you can get for 40, maybe $50,000 for a super nice one. You think so? Yeah, whereas, you know, uh, Supras are regularly, not just like one-offs, like regularly selling for over $100,000. So the reason that I think these cars became so desired among um, the tuner crowd is the, the 2J engine, right? It's incredible. Sure. You can get, I don't know, 600 horsepower, something on stock internals. Don't quote me on that. If you put 600 horsepower to your super and blow it up, it's not my fault. This is not really my world. But, um, of course, those cars all got tuned up and, and kind of chopped up. And now the cars that people want are going to be the original models that have been unmessed uh, with, right? Now, they are originally factory rated at like 320 horsepower. I can guarantee you if you spent $230,000 on the Supra and drove it today, it's probably not as fast as you remember it as it was in the 90s. No, and I mean, for that amount of money, you can get most Aston Martins. You can get, you know, uh, you can get Ferraris for that kind of money. You get some Lamborghinis for that kind of money. And it's just, it's going to be a way better driving experience than a Mark IV Supra, which as far as Toyotas go, is a great driving experience, or at least Toyotas of that era. But compared to some of the other cars in that price range, it's just, it's not as good. Now, um, I do want to talk about a funny story I just learned. Sure. So one of the things that the manufacturers do for us auto reviewers is they do these things called press drives. So uh, when a car is first announced, they bring a bunch of us out to sometimes a racetrack, sometimes just a road drive, and then they let us sample it for the day, and then we fly home, writer stories, la, 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 um, Anyways, I don't know what that was, la, la, la. <laughs> Brady kind of took a dump there. But one of my buddies worked for the Toyota PR department in the 1990s when they launched the Supra, and he was telling me a story about um, the, these cars. So they came off of the ship from Japan, um, once again, the A80 Supra, and they brought him to a racetrack, and I think it was in California. And the PR team was taking him around, and they're like, something is wrong with these cars. Because they were so incredibly fast. It's like, like well beyond where they should have been. Um, to the point, and like Toyota Japan was like, oh, no, promise, they're stock. But they're also like, make sure you run nothing but race gas. So, what? so clearly Toyota in Japan had souped up these cars for the journalists to drive. And they were they were doing like four seconds to sixty. So <laughs> he oh said when they were giving giving them to journalists, and people were like, "Oh my god, this thing is insanely quick." Well, yeah, <laughs> because they were far from stock, and they said they had to bring race gas everywhere with them. Because you, if you put pump gas on it, the thing wouldn't run. That's how tuned it was. Um, anyway, it's just a fun story about the A80 Supra. So those, I agree with you on that car. Cool car. Would I ever pay two hundred grand for one? No, it's insane. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, and. So now to take a shift, you know, I know we've been a little negative here trying to harp on some cars that are a little too expensive. And who knows, maybe it's just because we secretly want some of them and just want them to come down in value a little bit. But Maybe you're right, sir. Yeah, but there, uh, there are five cars that are we think are undervalued as well. And leading that off is going to be the C4 Corvette. This is the, uh, the Corvette from the... You know, came out in 1984, and I believe sold through, was it 1996? Yeah, this is about right. Now, the C4 Corp, once again, this list is more based off of our preferences and what we've seen in the marketplace. Um, and I do apologize about the picture in the back. The reason we do this, by the way, is because these podcasts are like an hour long, and the last one made like 37 bucks. So putting it in the final cut and the couple of hours it would take to put pictures on top, if you want to see better pictures... Head over to our Patreon, <laughs> and um, maybe we can, uh, if we can get more support for the Classics Podcast, we can afford yeah. uh, the editor's time to actually make them or, happen. Or maybe click that like button down there. Yeah, or, give it a you know. share. You know, we like doing these Classics Podcasts, but like three people listen to them. Um, but if you want to help the team out, TFL Studios on Patreon, we would love your help, um, and maybe the Classics Podcast can grow. That'd be fun. Absolutely. But let's talk about C4 Corvette. Um, C4 Corvettes, right? Yep. are the kind of the unloved models. They so are. Obviously, like, 
original 50s Corvettes very cool. You had the Stingrays of the 60s, C3 Corvettes from the 70s were really cool. Going to the 80s, um, new generation, new decade. The C4s came out radically different. Um, and, and now that we're some almost 40 years after their launch, uh, they're, they're about as cheap as they're going to get. Exactly, yeah. And these were, when they came out in 1984, revolutionary for, for the Corvette. You have to keep in mind that the C3 was essentially, uh, you know, and Case actually said this to me earlier, so I'll give him the credit for it, but they were essentially trucks. They, they drove like trucks. They were using a truck engine. They were not very fast. They were not very polished machines. And in 1984, when the C4 Corvette came out, it was a dramatic change for the for the Corvette, and uh, I think you know it, it really hasn't been appreciated for what it was um, because some of those early ones were known for being pretty slow, especially once the C5 came out. Um, and if you avoid, avoid the 1984 model specifically, which had the crossfire ignition system, is known to be unreliable. The rest of them are actually pretty darn reliable machines. Yeah, crossfire injection was kind of a low point. I agree with you 100% on the – oh, there's a better picture. Nice. On the C4 Corvette. First of all, I think they've aged incredibly well. Oh, yeah. Um, 80s are in right now, and the squared-off nature, the 180-degree rotating pop-up headlights, the early ones with the digital displays and the funky seat controls in the center, they're just so wicked retro cool. I was telling Case there's, like, this new trend online now where people are taking, like, their 80s cars and they're pulling out the gauge cluster and they're putting in a screen and then, like, simulating, like, retro 80s graphics. The Corvette was, like, peak retro 80s graphics. Yeah. And actually, people hated the graphics when they launched it. So I think in 89 or 90, I think it was 90, they switched to the... Um, more traditional gauges. Maybe it was ninety one. You can leave yeah, it no, th- below. I think you're. I think you're right. It was. Uh, yeah, I think eighty nine was the last year for that digital instrument cluster. The other thing too is if if you want to forgo the digital instrument cluster, if you want kind of the facelift ones, which I don't think are quite as cool, but um, are better cars, you can get pretty serious power out of them on some of the later LT powered cars, and they're super tr- tunable. They're very cheap to keep on the road, and popular to to kind of common belief, they handle really well. Yeah. I mean, the peak of them was kind of the ZR1, right? Right. Uh, the the ZR1s, though, are pretty darn valuable now. A lot of people have caught on to those. Uh, some of them fetching as much as like $50,000 for a, a really good ZR1. Um, and you can get some Grand Sports as well, which that's kind of my favorite of the Corvettes. Honestly, that's the blue one with the white stripes down the middle and then those two little red stripes on the front fender. You could pick one of those up for about, I, I think I've seen some as low as like $16,000 all the way up to 30, depending on the value or depending on the miles of them. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, it's, there's a lot of different options in there depending on what you're looking for. You know, if you want to go more performance oriented, if you want to go more retro cool oriented, and they're all on a fairly f- affordable budget. I would pitch to you, I would actually consider shelling out the money for a ZR1 because I think that these cars are so cheap um, compared to what they really should be for for the val for the the performance you got out of them, the design you got out of them, and the the first one that's going to appreciate is a ZR1. So even if you're spending thirty forty thousand for a good ZR1, I think that that is still a heck of a bargain right now. That was an engine, I think that was um, developed by Lotus, if I remember right, but it was an all aluminum 5.7 liter V8, um, dual overhead cam, Corvette engine, right? Uh, First dual overhead cam um, until the the C8 Z06, which is pretty nuts, right? So I I don't know, I love it. I I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think the later versions of those ZR1s put out 400 horsepower. If I'm not mistaken, they were, I mean, they were pretty darn quick. A lot of, when you think of the C4s, you think of a slow Corvette, but in the later forms, they were quite a performance machine. Yeah, 400 is horsepower, exactly right. But even a standard C4, if you just want a cool car to cruise around in, um, the early ones would be my choice with the digital gauges. Yeah. They're not going to be well, super they're no, fast. They're no slouch either. Weren't they putting out close to 300 horsepower as well? well? it's like 240. <laughs> oh, were they? Okay. Low. But 350 <laughs> torque. Yeah, there you torque. go. Yeah. Now, um, yeah. I, I, I like the C4s a lot. I, I think the C5s, better performance value if you want the sure. power per buck. But from a design and kind of just overall package, it's hard to beat the C4. Now, we have a section here. How to predict cars that will go up in value in cars that are hated. Uh, oh, yeah, you're, you're I'm jumping <laughs> ahead a little. You're, <laughs> you're, you're uh, giving it away a little bit here. So 
uh, I know you had some ideas. So I just wanted to talk about if you want to invest in a vehicle and you want to try and predict what's a cheap vehicle I can buy that's going to shoot up in value, don't. right? Well, don't don't listen to us. Should be the first rule. <laughs> yeah, there yeah, you we're go. We're not going to know. <laughs> but from my experience of what I've seen, generally the cars that are hated and the cars that are slow selling when they're new are the ones that are later super valuable. Think the BMW clown shoe, right? Like that M Coupe. Everybody hated it and lauded it when it first well, came out. Well, how about cars that were necessarily hated but didn't sell in high volume for one reason or another? I'm sure it's some yeah. enthusiasts like, or like weird stuff, like the clown shoe, right? I'm sure people liked it when it was new, but it was kind of expensive and weird looking and like it didn't sell in the volume. And you're right, those are really expensive now. Yep. Another car like that, E30 M3s. Back in the there 80s, right, the, the price difference between a 325 IS and an E30 M3 was a pretty good size gap. And zero to 60, a 325 IS was like a hair slower than an M3 on a skid, plaid, a skid pad. It was just a hair less than an M3. And you got this beautiful, smooth, straight six instead of this buzz bomb of an engine in the E30 M3. But now, of course, E30 M3s, they didn't sell in big volumes. They're worth a ton of money. I would, the other, and once again, if you actually want to know like values, go to Haggerty and look at the graphs. But from what I have experienced, it's also cars that were sought after when people were kids. The kids grew up, they got money, and those are the cars that are valuable now. Yeah, so if you think about it this way, the cars that are having a resurgence, or uh, I don't know about a resurgence, but a A a, time in the sun, yes. Yeah, time in their sun is 80s and 90s, right? Because these are the cars that people that are currently in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 30s even, Mm -hmm. uh, are now coming into some money. They've been working all their lives and the cars that they desired back then. So with that being said, the cars that I think are bottomed out in value right now and are going to start shooting up soon are like early 2000s. So what what would be a car? Just spitballing. (laughs) Just, just, Just having some fun with it. What would be a car that you might think someone... Yourself, because we wouldn't want to give someone advice because we're, we're sure. two bumbling idiots here. But a car you might consider holding on to for the next few years, maybe not to make money on, but just so you wouldn't lose money. Uh, like a Mazda Speed Miata. Good choice. Early 2000s, performance car, rare. Didn't sell a ton of them. Or maybe a Passat W8, which I did own briefly. And I know I've talked about it so you, on this you podcast. You sold but yeah. the car, yeah. and now you're telling people to buy it. That's some yeah. bad advice there. Well, I'm... <laughs> so when it comes to cars, any car that I own personally for more than a year means I loved it. Yeah. Um, any this? car that I've had for over two years just means that I haven't figured out how to sell it properly. <laughs> <laughs> I would pitch to you Grand Cherokee SRT8. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those have already started to go up in value. But if you wanted another one, 300C SRT8, or 300 SRT8, I should say. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. The old Charger SRTs, the Magnums, those are also on the way up, right? Yeah, Performance I can see cars. those. Pontiac G8s. Oh, yeah, well, the the GXP versions of those have already... The G8s? Yeah. The, the well, and six, whatever, the other ones, liter? too, like the um, that Solstice Coupe GXP that was, like, the last year that Pontiac existed, yeah. and they made like less than a hundred of these silly looking coupes. That I, I'm sorry, silly looking coupes. Oh, we're going to get so they, much hate. They, hate they actually, I think, look really cool. I'm not going to lie. I do really like the way they look. Um, but yeah, another one too is like a Saturn Sky Redline. I think Good those choice. are beautiful looking cars, still pretty darn affordable, and a lot of uh, bang for the buck when it comes to speed and handling and all of that. I agree. I Yeah, you know... Kind of those, like, obviously, you could talk about, like, all the 996 Turbo, 911s, and the 997s, which I've already appreciated in a big way, right? Maybe Vipers, you could make the argument about Vipers. Some of the S4 stuff, right? Some of the BMWs. Well, a lot of that stuff is already on its way up. We're looking for hidden, hidden gems there. Um, And speaking of hidden gems, I want to talk about some of the comments we got in our last video. This is a new little segment. Um, You can yell at us in the comments, and we will read (laughs) it out loud. Wow, people actually agreed with us. Oh, man. Someone said it wasn't just the Passat W8 that was cool. It was nearly the entire lineup in the early 2000s, including the Phaeton and the Touareg. Do you agree with them? Well, are you sure they were talking about whether it was cool or whether they were unreliable? Because we were talking about the <laughs> fact remember. that they got they got that uh, reputation for being unreliable. 
And I think that person was saying, they were all terrible. So a lot of people <laughs> in this video we did last time, and as a reminder, it was these are the classic steals you can grab for under $5,000. People are saying just because something is cheap doesn't mean it's a good deal. And the other people are saying just because it's old doesn't mean it's a classic. What would you say in response to that? Well, classic, just like a lot of words, is in the eye of the beholder, right? Sure. Um, so what may seem like a classic to me may not necessarily seem like a classic to you, and, and I, that's okay. We don't have to agree on that. Um, and, you know, it's. I think that every car at some point is going to be a classic. I mean, look at Volkswagen Beetles, for example. Mm -hmm. This was just, they called it the people's car. It was just an everyday run-around little car for cheap transportation for people, and now it truly is a classic vehicle. Another car, by the way, I think it's going to be valuable one day. Swear on my heart, not kidding you, Pontiac Aztec, because you're talking about hated cars or misunderstood cars. Yeah. And cars that have all but disappeared from the road, they're all in junkyards, so good ones remaining are going to be valuable one day. I could see that. We're Hello. talking eight, nine grand, Brendan. That, that plastic body cladding is not going to look good after so <laughs> many years. It doesn't look good anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look good today. Now let's keep going with our undervalued list. We've got a two for one here. What are we talking about? So I'm talking about the Jaguar XJR and XKR because they are a very similar vehicle. So the XK that I'm talking about was the 97 to 2006 and the XJ was from 98 to 2003. Uh, and the difference is just so you know the um, one is a sedan one was a convertible and a coupe. Yeah, but right. they both used the same 4-liter supercharged V8 that put out 370 horsepower and 387 pound-feet of torque. The other thing about these cars, and everybody get your keyboards ready. <laughs> I, I just feel it coming. It's like a wave. Wave of negativity coming oh, toward me. me back, Tommy. You know what I'm going to say? Yeah, what is that? What is the one thing I could say about a Jaguar that would get me chastised on the internet forever. Oh, God, I don't know. There's so many things you could say. The thing I'm going to say is that this era of Jaguar are... The best? No. Along the, the same lines. <laughs> okay, I'll just give it to you. Fairly reliable. Yeah? Well, that... I, reliable, I know. It's when Ford kind of took over, right? Yeah. So they were this fledgling British car company, and... You know, God bless them. They were making the best of what they had. Uh, but when Ford came in and they did a lot of part sharing and sure may have muted the brand a little bit from what they were, uh, what they did bring was reliability, or at least more reliability. More I wouldn't reliability. say they're, I mean, we're not talking their Toyota, but uh, going from a Jaguar to a Ford, you are up in the reliability game a little bit. Yeah, so let's... Let's let's. I got some. I got some information to back me up. Now the early models, right? Um, they they use a model. Uh, they use a model. They use an engine called the AJ V8, Aston Jag V8. Um, also the same engine, I believe, that you would find in the Lincoln LS. Oh, interesting. Do you remember the Lincoln LS? I'm pretty I do. sure that used an AJ V8, but they're actually very long-lived engines. Now the early ones, especially like pre-2000 XKs, had issues with these cylinder liners. However. Um, the, the later ones, and we've had a lot of experience in the, uh, in the LR3, right? The later AJV8s are pretty darn good. Um, I've heard they potentially do have some, um, some transmission issues and certainly some electrical issues, but overall these cars, you get so much horsepower and so much torque and so much supercharger wine for what kind of price? So, yeah, you can find, so it depends on which one you're looking at. So if you want to go with an XKR, uh, which is the Cooper convertible, you're looking at probably averaging around $15,000. Yep. Uh, but if you go for the XJR and add a little more practicality, like by adding the rear doors, uh, you can generally find those around 10000 bucks. 10000 bucks for an almost 400 horsepower uh, forced induction V8 screaming to the rear wheels, and it's luxurious inside too, like... Uh, it's I don't know. It's kind of hard to beat. I agree completely. These are fantastic cars. Um, 
I just I just think they're really cool. I really do like them. Um, especially like the 03 through 07 XJs were completely redesigned under Ford, even though they look basically the same as the older ones. Sure. All aluminum bodies, new V8 engine, better interiors. Um, even the standard ones, right? Even if you can't afford the R, right? A standard XK, like a car we have. Great car. Not a lot of headroom, granted that, but beautiful right. design. Yep. Good engine, good sound with some exhaust work. Slice the mufflers out of it. You got a fun car for seven, eight grand. Well, and a couple other interesting things about them: the five-speed automatic that they used in the the R, at least. I don't know about the other ones. Yeah, is actually a Mercedes oh, transmission. Interesting. Yeah, the five G Tronic transmission was in those R's. So you got British design, a Ford engine made it to a Mercedes automatic transmission. I think it's kind of an interesting car to have and shouldn't be slept on. Um, and what you also don't realize is that underneath, it really is an Aston Martin, yeah. too. The, at least the coupe versions of them, I, right? It wasn't exactly a Ford. It's not like it's like a Coyote V8. Sure. But it was under kind of the Ford era, more, more or less. Now, let's go on to the next vehicle on our list. Why does this thing keep just showing up on these lists, Brendan? <laughs> We've talked about this darn truck like eight times. Well, we talked about it, it once, and then we talked about the SUV version. Okay, once, what are we yeah. talking about? <laughs> so I'm talking about the Nissan Hardbody. I guess I'm just going to scream from the mountaintops until you all start buying these things. Uh, the D21, these were made from 1986 to 1987, uh, and these are just good little trucks back when nissan was making reliable vehicles before carlos Ghosn had his fingers in there uh they were just known for being good reliable little trucks that could last for a long time not only that but if you got like the v6 version it's the v6 out of the z out of the nissan z and they shoehorned that in a, into a tiny little truck yeah it made like 140 horsepower <laughs> yeah <I know>. well, <laughs> here's the thing about hard bodies i like them because 80s Toyota trucks are real expensive now. Like the really? Back to the Future era trucks, right? The, the Toyota pickups, 30 grand for a nice one, right? 40 grand in some cases. Um, hard bodies, like you said, 10 grand get you the best in the world. Yeah. Kind of just as cool in some ways. Very reliable. A little rusty. Got to watch out for rust, just like the Toyotas. But the sure. engines are good, and they go a long time. Yeah, and and ten grand, like he said, is like the world's nicest example that you could find. And many of these can be had for five thousand dollars or less. Uh, and the only reason it didn't make our last list of five thousand dollar cars is because I figured, well, I'm already talking about the Pathfinder. I shouldn't also talk about the truck version of it. But both the Pathfinder and the the truck are great vehicles to have. They're really robust. So many different things you can do to them. They're really good off-road and just super reliable, and it just doesn't get much better. So next up on the list, going back to some Japanese performance, we have the Mazda RX-7. Yep, and a lot of people have caught on to the FD RX-7 because, I mean, let's be real, it's beautiful, but it's also expensive. Whereas the FCs, which are the, the models that predate them, uh, are generally pretty affordable as far as classic Japanese sports cars go. Well, the thing about the F, so the FB, when the RX-7 launched, it was a very small, compact car, very sporty, right? The FC kind of grew a little fatter, a little heavier, a little bit softer. And then the FD was a return to the really hard-sprung sports car. So these are kind of sort of the black sheep of the era. They sure. also look exactly like 944 turbos. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can get a turbocharged model, right, which is going to be pretty darn good. It's going to be, um, I mean, reliability-wise, it's a rotary-powered Mazda. Yeah, just Not make sure they've word. got plenty of oil in yes. them. And, in and the engine. They should be yeah, around oil the, engine the engine and in the engine. Yeah, yeah. so they got, they got to have both in there. But yeah, these are good cars. FBRX7s are also creeping up. FCs, still pretty affordable. Let's see what this one sold for. Just poking around here. This one sold in 2018. That was a lot of years ago. Let's find a better one. Yeah, so like the what you, nicest. What are you looking at? The nicest example that I could find. That sold recently, sold for $47,000. Which is now, like half of an FD. Exactly. And right. we're talking the top of the market, like a showroom new condition car with like into the four digits of miles on the thing sold for $47,000. But the vast majority of the turbo model ones can be had for less than $20,000. Yeah, I'm looking at some right now. No reserve turbocharged 88 turbo. 
Um, turbocharged 88 turbo, great. Convertible, <laughs> 9,500. Um, RX-7 turbo, two five-speed, 17,000, right? So you are like 20,000 or less. And still a cool car, still makes cool rotary sounds, still looks pretty good. Yeah, it's got the pop-up headlights. It's got the pop-ups, it's got some louvers. Yeah, the turbo's got that cool hood scoop right there in the middle. And I mean, dare I say it, I actually think I prefer these to the 944s. That's a bad choice. As far as how they look, and uh, it really doesn't get more unique sounding than a rotary engine. Certainly the sound. You're right on about the sound. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. 1,300 miles for 47 grand. That's going to be one of the best in the world. But you can get a good turbo for 20-ish or under. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just saw that one go for $9,500. I mean, if you have 10,000 bucks and you want a cool classic Japanese car. And you want to spend another 10 grand on Apex seals. (laughs) The FCRX7, ladies and gentlemen. No. (laughs) Also, side note, another car which I think is very undervalued, RX8. Now, the yeah. early ones are kind of, insert word that, that means bad. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say trash, but they had a lot of issues. But the sure. last year or two of the RX-8, they made a critical design change to the rotary engine. Really? And they went from two oil injectors to three, I believe, wow. in that rotary engine, which vastly improved reliability, vastly improved it. And they only sold a few hundred because the reputation was just shot on the RX-8, but very cool cars. And lastly on our list, coming in at number one undervalued car, Dodge Viper. These are terrible <laughs> cars, Brendan. Well, so here's the thing. The second-gen Dodge Vipers, the coupes, people have caught on. Yeah. They're skyrocketing in value right now. Okay. Uh, the first-gens, however, which are far less practical, but I think are key to the originality of the Viper – are pretty darn affordable. Now, two years ago, top of the market of them was about $40,000. Now it's about $80,000 for one of them. So they are going well, up in going value. Up. But Ugh. you can still have them for thirty dollars to $40,000 for like a reasonable example. And we're talking about a car that Bob Lutz had the idea that I want to bring a car to the market that talks or that goes back to the original idea of the Shelby Cobra. Right. And this was his idea from the get-go, is that's what he wanted. And in fact, it was such a good design that Carroll Shelby himself, which I know you love Carroll Shelby, uh, helped introduce (laughs) the car in 1991 by driving it in the Indy 500. So you're talking about a a Dodge Viper or a Dodge Chrysler product that uh, Carroll Shelby had his hands on. These cars are basically race cars for the road, right? Yeah. Very space-age technology, very compromised in terms of comfort. I don't think they even had extra door handles, the early ones right here. I've got a picture from Bring a Trailer Auction. We can put it there on the screen. Boom, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. And most of them are this red color with these super, super rad-looking wheels. Um, No door handles on the outside, Brendan. Well, neither did – well, okay. Think about it this way. People complain about it because of the practicality. Was the Shelby Cobra a practical vehicle? No, it was not. It right. was not a practical vehicle. I, I appreciate it for it being the ultimate expression of a hot rod from the late night from the early nineteen nineties. And it was also insanely powerful, like four hundred horsepower. I just I've never been a Viper guy because Every Viper to car show is driven by some old guy who is like Oh watch on, out, Tommy. Well, on all fours <laughs> to get out of the car, right? Yeah. Um, and you get to see up his jean shorts, and it's just a <laughs> saggy. It's like you, you just get that that look of that almond in a shrubbery, and it's just it's just terrible. <laughs> yes, I just talked about an old man's balls, um, not from experience, but I just like. And then they go on and on about oh, it's one of five thousand in red with the tan interior, and the, I and then they go drive away and they stall it because their their knees been replaced three times, and they can't drive a clutch. Um, but maybe that's what makes them cool because they are just so compromised. Yeah, they they didn't care, right? And that's the cool thing that Bob Lutz was doing back then, is he just wanted to make a cool vehicle that hauled ass, sounded good, looked good going down the streets, and it was just a really unique design that still to this day, there's nothing out there that looks like a Viper. That's true, yeah. Manual transmission only. Yep. Launch, no traction control. People were dying. There's people (laughs) running for their lives. People die in a lot of ways. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> Wouldn't you rather die in saying I did it in a Viper rather than, I don't know, getting smushed by something falling off the 
building. That's but, true. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So those are undervalued and overvalued cars. Let us know if we're off a rock in the comments below. We read all of our comments. And again, please give us a like button. Hit that subscribe. Really helps us out because we'd love to do these classic podcasts a lot more often for you. And so we're yeah yeah for sure. And we're still got our TBL bid site running up. Andre just sold his truck for forty five thousand dollars. Big congrats to Andre. And you could be next. Check out TBLbids.com. Yeah, submit your car to us and we'll help you get it sold. And it'll probably be me personally that responds to your email. Brendan, in the flesh, <laughs> you can talk to him. Guys, let us know what you think. We'll see you on the next one. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.